Hello again, and welcome to another Kinsey Ag Podcast. I'm Kyle Long, here with Neil Kinsey. Buckle up for this episode, because this will probably be our most controversial episode to date. Today, we're going to be discussing soil pH. The good, the bad, and the ugly sides of it. So, what is soil pH, first of all? Soil pH is the acidity or basidity of a liquid or aqueous solution. Our soil needs water to perform all the necessary functions for life making that an aqueous solution. Historically, though, and an easier definition for pH and what I like to teach is that it is the potential of hydrogen in that soil. What determines that pH? There are various factors that can be attributed to that soil's pH, such as the parent material that make up the soil, the rainfall or climate of the area, as well as the fertilization and other management practices of that grower over time. A soil pH of less than 5.5 is considered strongly acidic. A pH of 5.5 to 6.4 is considered acidic. 6.5 to 7.5 is considered normal. And a pH over 7.5 is considered alkaline. Having either basic or acidic soil each pose their own issues out in the field. What does that potential of hydrogen do in the soil? In reality, it doesn't do much by itself. It is good to have a normal pH because hydrogen is easily bonded with the other ions that are present in the soil, and it helps build necessary compounds, and is an essential element for all kinds of processes in the soil and in the plant, from photosynthesis to helping break down and form necessary bonds in that soil. If you have a strongly acidic or alkaline soil, then you either have too much hydrogen present or not enough. So, what can be done to correct the soil as far as on taking a look at ph and what can be done in order to correct the soil with a ph that you don't want well depends on which way you need to go with it uh, low ph is generally that's some type of limestone or using lime to try to raise that ph if it's a really high ph then most of the time uh, people will say oh well we got to use sulfur or some type of sulfate products in order to get that pH down. Well, that gives a good general indication, but then the question is, what is it we're having to fight in each case, or what is it we're having to uh, deal with in each case that helps to determine whether that's the exact answer or not? Sounds cryptic. <laughs> <laughs> well, for example, uh, if we have a really low pH, we know going to have to come up with something in order to get that pH up, and generally that's some type of a limestone. But if you have a low pH, does that mean we need just any kind of lime, just correct the pH? Or does it mean if we use the proper type of limestone, the soil is actually going to do better? But how would you determine what liming material you need to use? Well, how you determine that is... Uh, Dr. Albrecht always pointed out there are four things that generally affect pH in soils that grow basically good crops. Calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. All four of those are needed, uh, not necessarily in the same amounts. But what he would say is when you start looking at a pH, if your pH is too low, well, yeah, that means we're going to have to add some calcium or magnesium, maybe one, maybe both. Maybe uh, sometimes uh, 
in addition to the calcium, magnesium, even some potassium or sodium. But not really enough potassium or sodium that is likely going to influence the pH that much. So calcium, magnesium are generally the two elements that most influence either raising or lowering a pH. And if we need limestone, then the question is, if we just put on enough lime to raise the pH to where we say it ought to be, then is everything going to work fine? Or does it matter how much calcium magnesium we have there? That's the, that's the difference between uh, looking at just looking at pH and looking at what we need in order to get that pH where it needs to be and still have the right uh, nutrient, con- the ideal nutrient content or the closest to the ideal nutrient content. Well, generally it's thought that if you have a correct pH, then everything works better. You know, that's the unlocking potential for all nutrition in the soil. So what uh, are we sacrificing anything to achieve that good pH just by liming or adding sulfur to bring down the pH and to get it into that 6-5 range? Well, you don't see this very often. Very, very seldom have I seen it. But the place I go back to is I put on a meeting for a group of, it was entirely dairy farmers in Western Australia. And one of those dairy farmers, a number of them sent samples to us as for that, but this one dairy farmer had sent samples, and during the break he came up and had one of his soil samples and handed it to me and said, what can I grow here? Well, first thing anybody's going to look at basically is what's the pH? So I look, because that's what a farmer's going to look at generally. So I looked at the pH, it was 6.5. And then I looked down at everything else and I handed a sample, the soil sample back to him. I said, I wouldn't think anything would grow there. The pH was 6.5. If that's all you need, well, then why wouldn't something grow there? Well, I'm just saying I wouldn't think that. When a farmer, when I told him that, he looked at me and said, you're right. Nothing grows there. Not weeds, not grass. He said, it is nothing. There's nothing growing there. But the pH was 6.5. If the pH of 6.5 is all that matters, why would nothing grow there? It's because virtually all of that pH was determined at 6.5 by sodium. He had a severe potassium deficiency, a severe magnesium deficiency, a severe calcium deficiency. None of those were there. So P, there's more to it than pH. There, when you start looking at a pH, what's causing that pH to be where it is? If, something, if the pH is below 6, we've got to be adding something. The question is, what is it that would make the most difference, not on the pH, but make the most difference for the crops we're having to grow there? If the pH is above 6.5, Dr. Albrecht would always say, if you've got a pH above 6.5, you've got too much of something. And if you have too much of one thing, you're not going to have enough of something else. So in those kind of cases, looking at pH tells you something, but it doesn't tell you what the real problem is. It says, oh, we got a problem. But what is that? What's causing that problem? And the only way to do that is to measure each one of those, what, what uh, we do and what we would recommend that be done is that you measure each one of those nutrients and see which ones are lacking, most lacking, in order to have the best influence on growing the crop. And the only way we know to do that is measure the amount of clay in the soil and what percentage of that clay is being uh, 
uh, is attracting calcium and magnesium, potassium, sodium, which is exchange capacity and base saturation. You're basically saying that pH is a result, not a goal for a grower. I believe that. I, Dr. Albrecht was the one who actually said, look, when you, when you have everything else in the right amount, you'll have the right pH. pH is an effect, not a cause. Yeah. When the soil pH, as far as looking at pH, when the soil pH is extremely high, it's no longer the pH that matters most. What it will cost to profitably maximize the land yield for that particular area or that particular farm or that particular soil comes first. We have clients with really high pHs, pHs in the eights, where crops go just fine. Whereas others right on the same farm with that same pH and the crop fails because something where it goes right is missing where it goes wrong. Something that's necessary to grow that crop. This is the real key on high pH soils. Do we have enough of each nutrient there in a form that's available for the plants to pick up? Yeah, I mean, because it is true that we can force a soil to have a quote-unquote good pH, but are we sacrificing something to force it to have that, that pH? Are we lacking fertility to force that soil to have a good pH? Which is better? Having a soil with a good pH and lacking fertilization or having a fertile soil with a little bit of a bad pH, I guess, a little bit acidic or a little bit alkaline. Well, I can tell you if if it were me, I'd rather have a soil with a real bad pH, extremely high, not low, different story, extremely high pH. As long as we can get the proper amount of nutrients there, you can grow a good crop in that soil. And I think. when you start looking at soils around the world, look at some of the high pH soils in France and Germany and Austria, uh, where, I mean, it's a lot of people think about vineyard soils, but we see soils in France that they're growing canola and wheat and other things on. Extremely high pH, but extremely good yields because as long as the proper amount of nutrients are there, it still works just fine. That's the key. How do we measure what we need in order to affect what we're growing there properly? Right. And when we're looking at pH, though, you know, there's that range. You're always taught that range. Okay, there's acidic. Less than six, you know, is pretty strongly acidic, and that's bad because you get toxicity and all of that that's present in the soil at those more acidic ranges. And then there's that good, and then there's that that high high pH soil that's also bad. But, uh, and it's typically liming is done based on pH in a traditional farming practice. But we don't ascribe to that. We lime based on the needs for the soil and how to determine that soil structure that we've talked about in the past. I like the story of where there was this girl with a, like, 8 or 9 pH. We got the soil test from them and... Uh, we said, well, you need calcium. His eyes, you know, got real big. He's like, why would I put calcium on a high pH soil? And he said, well, let's just try it anyway, at least on half, you know. And he put calcium on, and all of a sudden stuff was growing there again. That was 
not the cause. The cause wasn't the pH. That was the effect. And the effect was from caused by excessive sodium. And so that calcium was actually able to bully that sodium into submission and help open up that soil again because it was too tight. And so, you know, that's the thing of uh, pH. That's another example of, you know, you can, we could have forced that through sulfur and that might have worked to help bully that sodium down to get that pH corrected, but which is cheaper, sulfur or calcium too. So if you're going to get the same result, it's it's all about understanding pH is not the determining factor of what you need to help have a healthy soil. You know, there's there's more factors into it than that. It is good to have a good pH because you have hydrogen there to be able to have all those chemical compounds and stuff, but rainfall or irrigation water will have an effect on your pH and your soil as well. And so you can't, you can force that soil to do whatever you want it to, but is that the right call? Well, one of the things I think uh, may help to uh, explain some of the confusion is when we look at soils from the East Coast to the West Coast, if you talk to the people in the Western U.S., they still tell you they lime depending on the definition of liming. They don't use calcium limestone or magnesium limestone necessarily, but they use a lot of gypsum. And some people count gypsum as a liming material. Well, it's putting on calcium. It's not so if you put on calcium, is that liming? It's a, at least it's some type of a of a soil amendment. But when you start looking at soils on the east coast, if you have a soil that has a really low pH, you've got to do something in terms of correcting that, getting that pH up to a better level, or else uh, it's just not going to grow. But then people start thinking, well, since we got to get those low pHs into the ideal, well, when we get out west and we have these real high pHs, we got to get those to the ideal too. It's more important to have the proper amount of nutrients there than it is to have a lower pH. Now, Here's the real, to me, the assumption that so many people make that doesn't really apply when you look at what happens on a soil test. Whatever you have in a soil already, when you apply liming materials to it, they're going to affect the availability of those materials. But a lot of people think, well, if I've got a pH that's too high, like 7.5 or higher, well, then I can't do anything about correcting micronutrients in those soils if they're the ones that are the limiting factors, and many times they are. Well, pH, as pH goes up, only ties up what's already there. pH doesn't tie up what you, when you, when that pH gets to where it's going, whatever's happened, or when that pH is where it is, you come in there and put more micronutrients on, and if you use the proper form of micronutrients, they'll build up in that high pH soil. I mean, we've built zinc and iron and manganese in soils that have pHs of 8.3. And you can build zinc and iron, I'm sorry, zinc and manganese and copper in soils that have pH of 8.4. It's debatable whether you can for iron or not, but you can still use other forms and build it up. Not, not necessarily the normal way. So when we start looking at pH, extremely low pHs, we've got to do something to correct this. Extremely high pHs, you don't necessarily have to change that pH at all. You just have to make sure that the nutrients that are there are in a form, that whatever limiting nutrients that may be, are in a form that they stay available. 
at these various levels of pH, things can get tied up or blocked out, but you're saying that they can still be available to a plant if you supplementally feed them through, if you have like a, if you have a high pH and things are starting to get tied up or blocked out and not available, you can still add those things that would get tied up, such as like your manganese or boron, things like that. At a high pH, whatever is going to be unavailable is already unavailable. The question is, can we put something on there in a form that it's not affected? It stays there and stays available. And the answer is, yes, you can. We can put materials on high pH soil that do not tie up because the pH is high. You add them and they'll stay there and you can measure that they're still there in an available form for the plant to pick up and utilize. The problem for most people is they don't have a micronutrient test that actually measures how much you put on in a pound-for-pound basis. This is the thing Dr. Albrecht always stressed. You need to know when you put something on what effect it's going to have. If you can't measure it, how do you know? Is this uh, amendment better with liquid, something that's already in a super available form, or is a dry fertilizer that has to be converted down by the micronutrient or the microbiology a better source there? Well, uh, as far as that, we use it both ways as far as manganese or iron or zinc. Both ways work fine. Copper, don't recommend you use liquid copper. Now, why? Because liquid copper covers everything. And when, when you start putting copper on, it has an effect on Michael, why can you, when you put copper sulfate in water, does it kill out all the algae and so on and so forth? Because it spreads to the whole thing. Whereas if you put copper sulfate on dry, you got one little uh, particle over here and one over here. That doesn't automatically spread out and kill everything. So when it comes to copper, we recommend that we use a, a copper sulfate dry form. Coming from the vineyard experience, you know. Copper is used, copper and sulfur are both used as fungicides and all that. Like, so liquid copper, you know, is you spray that on foliar to help try and control a lot of the various diseases and molds and mildews that you get out there on the, on the grape leaves. Liquid copper, or there are also people that'll use a sulfur dust. So it makes know, sense, though, yeah. going, you know, applying that in on top of the soil, though, as uh, trying... You know, it makes sense trying to use that as a quick form, but also logic tells you if you use too much of that, then you're actually going to be hurting the biology in the soil as well. And there's some recent studies that have actually studied what happens when you put the copper on as in a dry form versus a liquid. And I know we're talking about pH here, but what they find is that the microbes in the soil, when you put on a dry copper sulfate, actually convert that to a form quickly that does not then affect and kill the living organisms in that soil. So it, there's something there. Now, I wanted to come back a while ago. You mentioned about uh, uh, the farmer who had a high pH and put the limestone on. Yeah. Uh, we don't look at pH to tell how much lime is required. What we look at is what is it that we have to have there 
to balance out the amount of magnesium and potassium and sodium and so forth. But even on a low pH soil, there are soils where you can come in, and I could show you some in North Carolina, I could show you some in Long Island, New York. But you come in and put limestone on that low pH soil, and you're going to tie up what's already deficient and just make it worse. So you can put lime on a low pH soil, and as that calcium goes up, when calcium goes up, something goes down. And if you've got something that's just borderline, a trace element, a, a, a secondary element, or a primary element, if you've got something that's just borderline, you put calcium on, it's not going to be just borderline. It's going to drop. Now, the problem is, if you got it, it's just a little above borderline, you put on limestone, it takes three years generally for a normal egg lime to break down. So do you get the problem the first year? Many times, no. It's the second year or the third year. When that calcium is finished breaking down, the question is, are you still going to have enough or not? Liming, pH does not tell you that that's going to be, that's what's going to happen. You need some way to be able to measure how much do we have? How much is the calcium going to tie up? And once it's tied up, or if you can't measure how much it's going to tie up, at least once it's tied up, be able to measure and say, uh-oh, we went from okay to deficient. Yeah. And the thing is, we lime based on how close we are to that ideal structure based on the exchange capacity. Our calcium, magnesium, and promoting that proper air and water soil structure. But whenever I think of that pH and liming for that, we're basically forcing something that uh, is going to potentially hurt us one way or the other. So we have to have that, that data point. We have to understand how close we are to that structure, and then the pH is just going to result of that because we find that the closer we are to that balanced soil structure, that proper air and water, the closer we are to the ideal pH, which that it, it should be around that 6.5 to 7 pH range. Granted, you know, in drier conditions, you'll have a higher pH and your irrigation water or your rainfall uh, amounts and mineralization will also affect that pH too. But we can look at that soil structure and know that we have the proper infiltration rates to keep those nutrients around and keep that microbiology happy and healthy. And the pH is just going to be whatever it is. But the closer we get to that structure, the better off we're going to be, for one, for maximizing our the efficiency and effectiveness of our soil but also as a byproduct we get a pretty close to a decent ph at least which at that time though is not really all that big of a deal because we'll still already have hydrogen breaking down and present from all the other uh, fertilizer inputs and things and from the water itself that's getting put on as well so yeah one thing, uh, what I would say is uh, that this becomes evident where so many people today are working with water movement in the soil. Well, how, how well does the soil take on water and how, what kind of movement do you get? And are doing a lot more studies as far as uh, what happens from soil to soil. And one, not that we're doing work with uh, Everybody in, in the world is working with water, but with the people that we get a chance to work with that's working with water, 
If they take a soil and say, this soil, of all the soil we're working with, this soil is the one where the water moves best. When you measure that soil, it's going to be the one that's closest to what we're talking about in terms of the needed saturation of calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. And it isn't just, it can be a lack of calcium that keeps uh, uh, water movement away. It can be uh, too little, too, too little calcium, too, too, too much magnesium, too much potassium, too much sodium. Any right. one of those can have a, an adverse effect on water movement. And people that's been following us for a while know, probably know the difference of ag limes like high calcium lime and dolomitic lime, but somebody just starting out may not know that there's a difference, you know, than gray lime, red lime, white lime. They just know it more by color or whatever than the actual effect on that. And so whenever we're trying to go for pH, oh, well, we just need the lime. And they put a dolomitic limestone on and say they are struggling. Like here in the Midwest, we have high magnesium generally, as a basic rule, uh, high magnesium in our heavier soils uh, inherently. So, and if we're putting dolomitic limestone, which still has calcium in it, on to correct a pH, we're actually hurting ourselves worse by compounding an already present issue and having high magnesium and then putting more and more on top of that and compounding that issue. That's a part of what I call the pH trap. pH trap being that if we look at only pH, then the question is, what do we do to get that pH to where it needs to be the fastest? Well, if we're looking here, right here where we live, many of the farmers said, well, pH is what matters. I need to, I need to correct my pH. Well, dolomitic limestone raises the pH faster than calcitic limestone. So farmers started putting on dolomite and getting their pH up to where it was supposed to be. But then... The soils weren't performing as well as they were in the past. Well, why not? Well, because as the if you just line back to the same pH, you can me- you can measure this, and that is you line back to the same pH every time you use dolomitic limestone. Every time the magnesium availability in that soil gets higher, calcium availability in that soil gets lower. If you just go to the same pH every time. And the reason being is when you start looking at how each one affects pH, if you take an amount of calcium that would raise the pH by one point, that same amount of magnesium will raise it by 1.6. Now, when you're putting on dolomite, we're not putting on as much of the volume of magnesium to raise it as much. There's a whole lot more calcium there than magnesium is what I'm saying. So we're not putting on as much magnesium as calcium. But when that magnesium pushes that pH to where it needs to be, if you stop there, you didn't get enough calcium. So what I'm, what I'm trying to ex- explain here is that as the pH is corrected, every time you'll have more magnesium and less calcium until you start looking to say, all right, now what do we need to do in order to get this calcium back up where it used to be? Because if you just go to that same pH, Every time, when you look at a soil that happens that way, the magnesium just keeps rising and the calcium just keeps going down. And I've seen soils that have a great pH, but the magnesium levels are so high, it takes 50% again more nitrogen 
to raise the same corn crop. And people can say what they want to, but you can measure that and see. And for the growers that we're working with generally, probably going to have more working with corn than any other crop. And when you're magnesium level, the saturation of magnesium in the soil is above 12%. It always takes more nitrogen than it does when it's between 10 and 12%. Yeah, and that makes it more difficult because the more magnesium present, the harder it is to get out. Magnesium is basically the bully in the soil, it seems like. Uh, it's it's small but stout, and it doesn't like to move. It doesn't like to get bullied. It uh, doesn't like to get taken out. So that's especially relevant, I think, uh, in those places, those heavier soils with high magnesium presence because it's already really, really difficult to work with those type of soils. And so, you know, this pH trap uh, really really has an effect on uh, the longevity of your soil and how long it also takes to to correct that after, or once you get on the correct path and actually start seeing that, okay, well, I have an issue and it's starting to become present in the in the field. Well, it just it's going to take you that much longer to correct that. Well, there's more to it than just the limestone portion, too. And that is when we have high magnesium and have to put on more more nitrogen to get the same yield, it doesn't mean that the plant uses all that up. It just means we put more in the soil. Or we've got then more in that soil that's not going to be utilized that has to go somewhere. And it's going to get converted Finally, the nitrate nitrogen, and then ultimately it's going to le- get leached out of the soil, but uh, work by University of Wisconsin and Ag Research Service back in the 90s showed it doesn't go out as nitrate nitrogen. What, le- what leaches out is when that nitrogen leaves the soil, 85% of that nitrate by then is converted to nitric acid, and nitric acid has a, an affinity for calcium it'll actually attach to the calcium and keep stripping calcium out so the more nitrogen we use that we don't have to use the more calcium we're going to lose and as that calcium drops for every percent the calcium drops in that soil magnesium goes up one percent that magnesium there calcium just helping it to whether it's available or not available so all of a sudden we actually raise the magnesium even more which makes the ph look even better even though we're getting worse off and worse off and worse off. So when we start looking at a pH trap, it's not just a matter of, oh, well, we're putting dolomitic lime on when we ought to be putting calcitic lime on. It's also a matter of we're taking calcium out, and if we don't measure how much we're taking out and put it back, it's going to get worse and worse, the calcium side is. And the magnesium, as the calcium drops, the magnesium goes up, and you can watch it on a soil test and see that that's happening. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to go back. You mentioned that calcium raises the pH, let's say, by one point or whatever, that magnesium influences it by 1.6. And I'd like to also uh, add that potassium is twice as effective at the calcium uh, at affecting the pH, and then sodium is four times more effective than calcium at raising that pH. Sodium's the most effective element to raise that pH. And that's relevant in that earlier story of uh, that pH of 8. And why that pH was so high is because that, that sodium was so high. And it had that 
that effect and it looked like it was higher and then that calcium was able to remove that and lower that pH influence. He actually had two problems there and the sodium wasn't as much of a problem in terms of that pH as was magnesium. He had really high magnesium and high sodium. And I will say while we're talking about that, to me, those are the hardest soils to correct. If you've got high sodium and high magnesium, hopefully the magnesium is higher than the sodium because uh, a lot of times it, it takes so much uh, to correct it that people say, well, that's more than my farm's worth. Well, uh, it still takes that if we have to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then let's talk about uh, the high pH and low calcium because most consultants would say that that grower doesn't need lime because that pH is already high. But I think I remember the story where we were able to increase this grower's yields by 15 bushels and that pH even went down whenever we were uh, applying the lime that was necessary because that calcium was low and it needed that calcium. And that pH was high though, so we were able to, to do that. Well, the, it is true. That's what happened. But the most dramatic uh, example is going back to that soil that had the pH of 8.4. And when we measured it, uh, and th- this fellow didn't just take our word for it. He actually came to a five-day uh, course that we taught and studied it, paid attention to it. And after it was over, he said, I want to see what we need to do. And based on his understanding then he said, well, we're going to do it on uh, half the land. Now, half the land was 1,000 acres. So, that, you know, that wasn't, a, it wasn't a small amount. But the soil test came back, and I thought, he's never going to believe me. He Because I told him, you need four tons of calcium carbonate limestone just to overcome the calcium deficiency. That doesn't solve all your problems. Well, he put it on on 1,000 acres. and. First, it takes three years for it to break down. So the first year, well, he had a number of different uh, positive results, including the soil worked easier, the soil would crumble in your hand more so than uh, than on the portion where he didn't lime would still stay in a ribbon like it always had. But second year was the time that he called me and said, have you seen the soil test yet? No, I haven't seen them. He says, what do you think the pH is? Now, remember, these pHs were 8.4. They put four tons of lime on. Two years later, the pHs were down because I said, well, I'm going to guess they're probably around 7, 7, 7, 8. And he said, they are. And so the pH, actually, we put four tons of lime on, and the pH went down because it affected the magnesium and the sodium, which has so much, of a, so much more influence on that pH. This is so foreign to so many people's thinking they just think, oh, that can't happen. If you look at it the first year, you don't see that. you got to keep in mind it takes three years to see the full effects. And, and we weren't done even at, at that. And that fellow is still a client today, and uh, he'll tell you his soil works so much different than not even the same kind of soil. I, I think it's just important to remember, like the original note that we said at the beginning, is that if we have a high pH, there's an excess of something. We have a low pH, there's not enough of something else, and it's generally one of those cations. And what that means is that we should look at that. We need to be looking at the saturation percentage and not the pH to determine how productive and how well and how fertile our soil is and how healthy it is. 
because you know there's there's multiple different variations that can be you have low calcium high ph high ph you know high magnesium but when it all comes down to it if you don't have the proper ph then you have not enough of something or too much of something and it's just a matter of looking at our saturation percentages and seeing what we have uh, to work with and then that will determine a plan moving forward and when we mention that i i don't know if i can say this in a way that makes sense i hadn't really thought about trying to say it here but uh, on a low ph soil what we're doing is adding the things that are missing on a high ph soil that's the same thing you have to do add the things that are missing you just go in there and look it doesn't say well okay we're going to get rid of all this it's a matter of can we provide enough of for example, if you've got a real high calcium soil, 84% or 85%, the question is, because that's so high, what's, what's it causing to be lacking? Well, then we can come in there and look and see what's short and put that on for growing that crop and make a difference in terms of how well the yields are. Make a difference between not doing well to doing okay to doing excellent, depending on locating what that calcium is actually causing to be uh, short in that soil. And I always remember you saying that calcium, and this is just a general note, which is, I think, one to bring up, that calcium is effective at raising pH whenever pH is low. But whenever the pH is high, the magnesium, potassium, and sodium are more effective at raising that pH or that influence of pH, too. And I think that that's something also to note as well, so that when you put calcium on a soil that uh, that has a high pH but needs calcium, it actually causes the pH to go down and not up. Yeah, and let's talk about soil pH and acidity because I don't think that that's something that's necessarily uh, talked about or understood very well. How does a soil become more acidic, and uh, you know just what are your thoughts on that? You know, there's there's multiple different ways. Uh, whenever I think about it, I think of just okay. Through. When when you ask the question, how does the soil become more acidic? That's the very same to me as asking, well, what causes the soil to have a lower pH? You know, what what lowers the pH of a soil, or why does the soil have a low pH in the first place? Well, there are several reasons for that, and I guess we ought to start out by saying. Where does acidic soil start? Anything less, let's put it the other way, anything with a pH of 7 or higher is considered that uh, we don't have an acidic soil. It's a basic soil. So then as the pH starts dropping from 7 down lower and lower and lower, what, what is it that, that causes soil acidity? Something to get that soil in a pH of 7 or less. Okay? First reason can be that's what the soil was made of in the first place. The parent material just has a low pH. And many parts of the U.S. you find uh, we have uh, low pHs because of the parent material. Secondly. Well, the, the parent material being if it's, if it's got a lot of hydrogen present in that parent material, like in the clays or something, and then through erosion and stuff, it gets unbonded. The, those hydrogen ions get unbound from their their compounds and then more present in that uh through that parental material Let, let's just use an example i had a chance to go with a 
the son of a fellow, we were working on light sands, and this guy bought a, a parcel of land in the Ozarks here in Missouri. And he wanted to make a cattle ranch out of it. And he hired me to come over, and we walked the place together, pull soil samples. It's, it was clay. It's a clay soil. But uh, when we got it back, the pH was low, and uh, the exchange capacity was low. And it had, it had a very low pH, and he needed limestone, all right, but he didn't need, he didn't need what I thought he was going to need. He needed, we needed calcium and magnesium both on that low pH soil, even though it was a, quote, heavy yellow clay soil. But it was it didn't it didn't have any clay colloids left in it. It had all been eroded away over the uh, centuries of time or eons of time, whatever it takes to do that. Because geologists say that at one time the Ozarks, what we call Ozark Mountains, which is just more or less hills to people that are used mm-hmm. to mountains, but the geologists say at one time the Ozarks were higher mountains than the Rocky Mountains. It's just that they eroded away. So. When we start looking at that, uh, it it uh, it has it is a clay type soil. Uh, whatever did the parent material have that, and it just all eroded away? Maybe so. But when you look at that soil now, it is the parent material, and it it has a very low pH. So, what caused it? Well, might have been erosion. Might have been that that was that way all the time. Mm-hmm. Don't know that story, but. When we start looking at a, a soil, if the if the pH is low, it can be that we, it could be that we didn't do anything to it. That's just what naturally happened to it over a period of time, regardless of what forces it was that made it, whether it's water or wind or both or whatever it might be. Yeah, and um, other than that, the other thing that I can think of is you know through rainfall. Rainfall is a stripping agent too, and so that will also have an effect at lowering the acidity uh, or uh, lowering the pH, raising the acidity of the uh, soil as well. And uh, generally, or maybe even through mineralization through irrigation water, but typically you find mineralization through irrigation that would typically raise the pH uh, more than strip it out. But so Rainfalls typically what you would see is as far as uh, a stripping agent and adding more hydrogen rather than uh, binding up what is already there. Yeah, more or less. Again, I guess you could say that's weathering in a sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then one that people don't really think about, once you have a soil that's... uh, even the ideal soil, Dr. Albrecht used to say, well, the ideal soil has a pH of 6. But if you stop at pH of 6, it's not going to be long till it drops down below 6 into the 5s. And now you don't have the ideal uh, situation for going a crop. So what he would always say is uh, shoot for getting your nutrients up to the point that it brings the pH between 6.3 and 6.5. And you can do that and have exactly the amount of uh, of all the various materials if you're building a soil up with a low pH. And when you get to 6.5, you can still have all the potassium you need, all the magnesium you need, all the calcium you need, and so forth. So by the time you get there, uh, you can actually have a, P- you can have a pH of 6.5 and have 
potassium level been seven, seven and a half percent, still have a six, five pH if everything else is there in the right amount so that the water goes in, comes back up. In other words, the right structure is there and the right fertility is there. But once you get that soil to the place where we'd say, well, we want to have our magnesium between 10 and 12 percent, the biggest mistake so many people make that get there, and there aren't a lot of people who do get there, but once they get there, they think, okay, now I got it made. All I have to do is put on my nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, maybe sulfur and boron, and I, I don't have to worry anymore. When you start looking at even soils that have really exchange capacity in the teens and low 20s, you don't have very much extra magnesium when we talk about between 10 and 12%. Take a few hundred pounds out and you go from from right amount down to below 10%, you're always going to be deficient in terms of magnesium into the plant. They just cannot get enough if you're below 10% on the test that we're using. And then speaking of magnesium, though, a thought just occurred to me. Is there any difference in the pH in a sandy soil versus a heavy, heavy clay soil? You know, are we looking because in a sandy uh, soil, we have to add magnesium and it's got a higher effect than calcium does at manipulating that pH. And so sometimes in these extreme sandy conditions, we have to put magnesium up to uh, past 100 percent or, you know whatever more than, uh, more than the soil can more, hold yeah, in order right. to grow the crop and so would that affect our ph uh sure it, know, does. And it does cause any nutrient interaction issues because of that uh that ph it can but that's why you have to have the, that that's why we always stress you can't manage what you can't measure measure what you've got and as long as you've got enough showing up there there's going to be enough to take care of your needs but if you if you have a certain amount of a nutrient in that soil and you start putting on magnesium and the pH goes up really quick, yes, it's going to have an effect on the availability of those nutrients unless it's applied and taken and applied and taken. And in, in those cases where you're talking about where we don't have enough in the soil in order to grow the crop, so it finally gets to the point where you got to put more there than the soil can hold. But... The crop, as long as you go in the crops and it takes it off again, you you don't run into the same kind of problems. Yeah, because we're basically almost spoon feeding the plant and the soil. Yep. At that yep. at that point. So 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 that but that is one way taking calcium and magnesium from the soil by the crops we grow as it's taken out and we got to put it back. Now magnesium becomes the limiting factor there a lot faster than calcium because most of the time we have thousands of pounds of calcium in a soil but only hundreds of pounds of magnesium in a soil that has the proper relationship and i'm only talking about once you get that soil right it's not going to stay right unless we work at it you don't just get something for nothing you got to keep on top of it and i wish it were that we could just say okay now we're done it'd be nice but that's not the way it works so people can get to where they're going and say, I got such a good soil now, I don't have to worry about it anymore, and stop testing, get careless about it or whatever, and uh, one of these days you're going to get in trouble. But that's not, that's not uh, the, the only, those three things that we've mentioned, parent material, rainfall or weathering, and taking nutrients out because of what we're growing there, 
But there's a couple other things that people don't necessarily pay that much attention to that really affects the calcium availability or that lowers a pH or that causes higher soil acidity. And this is actually pointed out in, uh, in soil presentations back in the 1950s that were used to teach about soil and what happened. But one of those things is nitrogen fixation by bacteria on legume roots. That's plainly given back in that time. In other words, growing legumes in a soil and when the, when the uh, rhizobium bacteria causes the nodulation and so forth, those bacteria actually produce more nitrogen than they need to grow that crop. Now, how can you say that? How you know it's not? How you know that? Well, I don't know about uh, all universities, but I know the University of Missouri has said for decades, if you have one-third of a pasture or a hay uh, crop if one-third of that is made up of legumes and has good nodulation and so forth, that produces enough nitrogen for that one-third legume plus the other two-thirds is grass. They're su- the, the legumes are supplying enough uh, nitrogen for themselves plus to be able to grow that grass. Now, if we're talking about huge, huge tonnage, does that hold true? Probably have to add some nitrogen like everywhere else. But when we're talking about one of the things we see in in, in uh, alfalfa fields that are basically used to go alfalfa for long periods of time and they may go back go out but then come back in again one of the things we generally always see is that the ph is good but the calcium levels are deficient and have to come in there and start adding calcium because alfalfa i think 10 tons takes 160 pounds of calcium you take 10 10 tons off four years in a row uh, you've taken more than the equivalent of a ton of limestone out just by what you've grown and sent off to somewhere well people don't necessarily make that up if they're just looking at ph they'll never notice well our calcium levels are dropping in these soils to the point that we need to do something about it because it's a few hundred pounds but a few hundred pounds makes a big difference whenever you're looking at percentage wise so nitrogen fixation by bacteria on legume roots what why does that cause any problem because if you got extra nitrogen and that nitrogen is not utilized by something. When that nitrogen moves out, it takes something with it, just like it does if we put on commercial nitrogen. And I'm not saying don't raise legumes. All I'm saying is we need to keep up with what we're doing, what we're using, and put it back. And the only way I know to do that is to have some way to measure how much calcium are we losing and what does it take to put it back again. You can't do that by pH. pH doesn't get you can make a better stab at it than you can otherwise. But it doesn't tell you what you've lost because so many times, put, the, put it back to the pH you had before, we don't have the same calcium we had before. It, if, you, if you just go back and build back to the same pH every time, every time you do that, you're going to have less calcium and more magnesium. And you can check it on a soil test and prove it. If you just use the same test every time, whoever's test, use the same test every time and watch it over the years. Well, that's fourth way. Then there's one more. What causes lower pH? Probably this one happens more often than the legume portion. But bacterial conversion of nitrogen compounds in the soil, including nitrogen fertilizers. Now, this is not something we say. This is something that the uh, uh, that 
all the people who used to teach soils in the 1950s, it was in their slide. Pre- I've got an old slide presentation that shows uh, that bacterial conversion of nitrogen compounds in the soil, including nitrogen fertilizers, cause a lower pH or soil acidity. Well, again, how does that do it? We talked about that earlier. When we put on so much nitrogen that it's not all used up and it converts to nitrate nitrogen, before it goes out, that is converted to nitric acid and it strips calcium out of the soil. And when it strips calcium out, nitrogen does not take out magnesium. It only takes calcium. And so as a consequence, it pulls the calcium out and leaves the magnesium behind. And when it leaves the magnesium behind, that actually causes the pH to be not to drop by as much as what we've, to reflect how much calcium we've actually lost. So if you just use pH, that's why you come up short every time. Poor calcium always gets bullied. Even though it's a double positive charge, it still has the effect because really and truly it is the most available nutrient in there or should be whenever we're at a proper structure because we have thousands of pounds of that calcium and only hundreds of pounds of the other various cations as well. But also, uh, this might get a little too technical, so I won't go into that, but calcium also has the unfortunate benefit of having the largest amount of valence electrons uh, the farthest out from its nucleus, so that means that it's the more reactive out of the others as well. And so while it may be a double positive charge, it has an affinity and it has special properties from that. It also does get very reactive. It, it's very reactive because it's, it's, it's just a bigger ion as well. So at the expense of going over an hour, I'd like to kind of recap a couple of things, but then introduce uh, one more topic, I think. Whenever we have a low pH, basically, though, we're able to look at a soil test. That means we don't have something. Like, we're deficient in something, and we need to try and bring that up. Generally, that's done with liming. A majority of the time can be done with liming. Whenever we have a high pH, it is a little bit harder and more difficult to manage because, especially if it's high magnesium, that can be sometimes pretty tricky to to back down in just a couple of years' time. So, whenever I think of management practices for high pH environments to get us by until we can get down... Using something, what do you think about using something like ammonium sulfate or something like that uh, is can temporarily create this uh, ideal situation, at least around the root zone? Because we do need to talk about, we've talked about kind of the bad of pH, but there is benefits of having a, uh, a neutral environment around the root hairs, at least, and through something like irrigation or something or fertilization practices uh, we can try and create more acidic environments around that root zone it's especially easily to do and stuff like uh, drip irrigation but can be done out in the regular field as well by management practices but you know ammonium and has more of a acidic effect than just straight sulfur and generally we'd say oh sulfur but ammonium sulfate having the benefit of both could create some uh, more ideal environments temporarily around those root hairs so that the nutrient interactions and uh, we can give that soil some hydrogen to do whatever it needs to do and get up into the plant and do those necessary processes. Well, in actual fact, uh, when when it comes down to uh, 
magnesium and sometimes it can be years and years i've had i had one client want to get rid of his magnesium but we couldn't afford to do it all at once because he had so much i said just use sulfur and sulfates and one of the main things that we used there was ammonium sulfate as much as we could as a nitrogen source it took 15 years to get the magnesium out but it finally got where it needed to go so it depends on how much it's going to cost, what what it's going to take, and how much when you're doing it, how much yield you're going to make to pay for it. And if it's not going to pay for it, then better do what you need to do to get your yield, and then endure with the rest of it. So, uh, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes down to uh, the the soil solution around the root hairs, we need a little bit of of an acidic situation there simply because we need some hydrogen to trade off but the other side of that is we need calcium in that soil solution in order mm-hmm. to get the nutrients into that into the roots and into the plant so right. let's let's put it this way i can't honestly say that uh, you have to have this in the soil but in terms of advanced agronomy courses the uh, professors will teach in those courses that in order to have maximum uptake of nitrogen phosphorus and potassium you need at least 60% saturation of calcium in the soil solution around the root hair. Well, if you've got 60% or higher than that, uh, up to say even 68%, something of that nature to get that in there, that means we're going to have an acidic situation there in order to get that to be accomplished because it's always going to be a pH below 7 if we got that in the right way. Mm-hmm. And then so... We've established, you know, kind of the pitfalls. Uh, we at lower pHs we have toxifying effects from of various nutrients and things like that. Uh, and as we, if we have too much of something, it can tie up uh, other doesn't have any hydrogen present to, you know, make the necessary compounds and split the compounds that are necessary for plant and biological life uh, sustaining in the soil. So. What about some good pHs? Like we'll kind of back up and say, okay, well, here's the bad parts of pH, but why there also is a benefit to having pH uh, in the correct environment or the correct range as well. Well, I don't know if that's the proper term to use, but soil pH indicators are something we need to look at, and that can be high or low. For example, low pH we just talked about and indicates soil acidity. Uh, that can be a temporary condition by putting sulfur on or sulfates or nitrogen or even extremely dry soil. That pH can be low because of that, and it's a temporary thing. And then once you get that corrected, uh, or like 30 days out from the time you apply nitrogen, generally it's not going to have that same adverse effect by lowering the pH and make it look like your pH is really lower than it needs to be. So... That's a pH indicator, and what it indicates to me is when that happens, generally it will cause your soil to overexpress the amount of negative charge it has. So it, as a consequence, we'll have a higher exchange capacity than we need. pH does give you, a, a pH can cause that, and the question is, is it temporary or is it, if it's a constant pH, then that's not going to happen. But we'll get so they have pHs in, at 5.2 and we'll say, is that pH 5.2 because of natural conditions or is it 5.2 because of something we've just done to it? High pH indicates a lack of acidity and can affect 
as you mentioned, ammonium availability. Uh, in medium to heavy potassium, uh, in medium to heavy soils, uh, pH above 6.5 actually makes, when you start looking at your pH and you say, well, we're short on potassium, we need to build our potassium level. If your pH is above 6.5 and your exchange capacity is above an 8.7, it's going to get harder and harder to build that potassium with just using normal amounts. It takes abnormal amounts of potassium to overcome and get that to stay in those soils. So a pH of 6.5 or higher tells us we're not going to be able to get as much efficiency out of raising potassium with the same amount of materials. And while we we're on ammonium too, uh, I know it's not really ammonium, but it's, uh, it's actually more towards phosphate. And we can talk about it more whenever we talk about phosphate, but the ammonium, you know, at a high pH has a toxifying effect, uh, I'd like to point out that a lot of people use diammonium phosphate as their phosphorus source, especially around here. And if we have a pH above 7.5 and we're using diammonium phosphate, we're actually producing more ammonium, and which converts to ammonia, which actually has a toxifying effect on the root hairs in the biology. And so I just want to quickly point out that pH also has that effect that the ammonium is actually going to, uh, the extra ammonium from diammonium phosphate is actually going to be more harmful than it is good for your soil, and you should probably use a monoammonium phosphate uh, or a soft rock phosphate if you ha are in that high pH environment. It's just something along the li same lines, uh, ammonium, but it's also phosphate, so it's just And that was something. my next note, it indicates when MAP should be considered okay. over that yeah. to supply phosphate. <laughs> And then also it indicates what can happen to elements already available in each soil. Not elements that you're going to put on, but P wherever your pH is, if you do something to raise that pH, as it goes up, it's going to affect the availability of what's already there. But once it affects what's already there, then you can say, okay, we can come back in and put more material on. And it, that because that pH is where it is, doesn't mean it's going to tie up the next materials you put on, especially if you use bi soil builders rather than plant feeders. We'll talk about that in a later episode, I'm sure. But that, to me, the, when people say, well, you don't think pH matters, yes, pH does matter. It matters in all those ways we just talked about. All we say is pH does not tell you what you need to do in terms of calcium magnesium to get the most benefit from the lime you apply. We need to know more than just pH. We need to know how much of that is related to magnesium and how much of that is related to calcium and even potassium and sodium. We want to thank everybody for listening to today's episode and uh, we appreciate your all's time and uh, patience while we continue to put these out and we hope you enjoy them. If you have any questions about today's episodes or any of our previous episodes, you can send us an email at kspodcast at kinseyag.com. Or for further information, you can check out our website at www.kinseyag.com. We'll look forward to seeing you next time, and we'll see you around the bend.